This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's a Monday night, so I would usually be joined by Ash Sarkar. But if you've been on Twitter today, you'll know she has been interviewing Bernie Sanders. Um, That's out tomorrow. We'll be showing you hopefully a clip on tonight's show. And in place of Ash, I have an excellent guest. Um, Always brilliant feedback whenever you're on the show. Helena, aka No Justice MTG on YouTube and Twitch. Thank you for having me as always. Hopefully I can fill Ash Sarkar's incredibly stylish shoes today. Coming up later tonight, Labour's position on Gaza is facing scrutiny ahead of another ceasefire vote this Wednesday. Will they still whip for people to abstain? Um, We look at some of the latest developments from Gaza and a terrifying warning from Bernie Gantz, um, so a member of the War Cabinet, and Labour are proposing citizens' assemblies. Are they a good idea or just another gimmick? First story. For the second time this year, Israel is in the dock at The Hague for the next week. The International Court of Justice will be hearing evidence from representatives of 52 states over the legality of Israel's decades-long occupation of the Palestinian territories. Speaking first were representatives for Palestine. Their arguments began with Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki giving this summary of what Israeli occupation has meant for Palestinians. This reality is known by every Palestinian, suffered by millions, generation after generation. It is a reality of the expulsion of the Palestinian people from their own land, not just during the 1948 Nakba, which led to the expulsion of up to 900,000 Palestinians, not just the expulsion of more than 400,000 Palestinians in 1967, but continually, including now, as I address you at this very moment, it is the indiscriminate maiming and killing of Palestinians. It means you can spend the entirety of your life as a refugee, denied your dignity and your right to return home. It means your life and family, your community and home, are under constant threat. Your loved ones can be taken away and thrown in an Israeli jail, held there indefinitely. Your land can be stolen, colonized, and annexed without hesitation. Freedom is nowhere to be found. There is no safe haven. It means discrimination everywhere and no justice anywhere. It is a reality where Israel can destroy Gaza, killing tens of thousands of Palestinians, almost half of them children, leaving one million children starved, terrorized, and traumatized for life, orphaned of a mother, a father, or both, amputated and disabled, leaving nearly two million people displaced and desperate with nowhere to shelter from the onslaught. This case being heard isn't connected to the genocide case brought by South Africa in January. Um, There the court ordered that Israel had to do everything in its power to prevent a genocide in Gaza. It's an order, of course, that Israel doesn't appear to be taking very seriously. Um, This case, which is on the legality 
of the occupation was sent to the ICJ before the start of this war, and it was referred to the court by the UN General Assembly. Now, they've asked the court to issue an advisory opinion on whether Israel's continued occupation of the Palestinian territories is legal. Um, An advisory opinion, as the name suggests, is not legally binding, but rather informs future debates and decisions in the UN. So what would make an occupation illegal? Well, to be legal, an occupation has to be temporary. And Israel has already occupied the Palestinian territories for 56 years. Paul Riker was one of the lawyers for Israel speaking at the ICJ. The applicable rule of law is straightforward. As Pictet wrote in 1958, occupation is essentially a temporary situation. This remains the law. Occupation can only be a temporary state of affairs. A permanent occupation is a legal oxymoron. Mr. President, what makes Israel's ongoing occupation of the Palestinian territory unlawful is precisely its permanent character. Reichler pointed to four pieces of evidence that he said showed Israel's occupation is permanent. So Israel's de jure and de facto annexation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank, Israel's claims of sovereignty over these areas, which which it refers to by their biblical names, Judea and Samaria, um, so that's the West Bank, and considers integral parts of the state of Israel. Israel's establishment of hundreds of settlement in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, with over 700,000 Israeli settlers who have been promised by successive Israeli governments that they will never be uprooted, and the multitude of official statements and documents that openly declare Israel's intention to incorporate all the occupied territory east of the Green Line into the state of Israel as a permanent part of a single Jewish state extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Of course, I'm no lawyer, but this seems to me to be a bit of a slam-dunk case, right? The idea that an occupation is temporary, and when Israel is actively moving settlers into that area and has been doing so for the past four decades and says it is all part of a greater Israel. I mean, this doesn't seem like it should be a particularly um, difficult case to adjudicate. Um, Of course, permanent occupation isn't only illegal, it also denies Palestinians their fundamental rights. Now, the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination is one that has been repeatedly affirmed by the UN Security Council, the General Assembly, and the ICJ itself. Lawyer Philippe Sands argued that Israel's occupation prevents Palestinians from exercising that right. The violation of Palestine's exercise of the right to self-determination is manifest and it is gross. In summary, Israel has arrogated to itself the right to decide who owns Palestinian land, who may live on it, and how it is to be used. On Israel's approach, it decides on the use of resources and allocations of benefits. On Israel's approach, it decides whether Palestinians remain or return. On Israel's approach, it decides how, if at all, Palestinians may meet, trade, teach, worship, live, love. And Israel wants more. Its current prime minister and government celebrate the denial of Palestinian exercise of self-determination, of sovereignty and statehood. They celebrate it. They claim a right to construct settlements 
in the Palestinian territory. And with pride, they speak of the power to frustrate the Oslo Accords and Palestinian statehood, the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of the right of self-determination. The court is likely to take several months to come to a view about the legality of Israel's occupation of Palestine. But even if they do advise that the occupation is illegal, it's not obvious what difference that will make. In 2004, the UN asked the court to issue an advisory opinion over the legality of Israel's West Bank barrier. That's a 440-kilometre wall penning Palestinians into um, the West Bank. Now, the ICJ found that the wall violated international law because it was mainly built within the West Bank. It was built on Palestinian territory and therefore amounted to de facto annexation. Israel was ordered to take down the wall and compensate Palestinians for the damage it had caused, or it was recommended that Israel do those things. But Israel ignored that advice. No one has forced them to follow that advice, and the wall still stands 20 years later. So what's the point of this latest case? Palestinian envoy to the UN, Riyad Mansour, said this about its importance. The state of Palestine appeals to this court to guide the international community in upholding international law, ending injustice and achieving a just and lasting peace, to guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children. (laughs) Not as demographic threat in which the identity of the group to which we belong does not diminish the human rights to which we are all entitled, a future in which no Palestinian and no Israelis is killed, a future in which two states live side by side in peace and security. Very powerful intervention there. Um, Earlier today, I spoke to Clive Baldwin, who's senior legal advisor at Human Rights Watch, who was at The Hague for today's hearing. This is a very big case, potentially. It's the International Court of Justice has been asked about a year ago by the UN General Assembly for what's called an advisory opinion on the legal consequences of Israel's protracted occupation and Israel's um, policies and practices in the occupation. So there's quite a lot that the court could address. We don't know if it will. And that today in court, when Palestine opened the case, that Palestine has asked the court to address. And that particularly includes consequences of Israeli discriminatory policies and practices. So that can include, is um, it racial discrimination? Is it the crime against humanity of racial persecution? And rather big one is it the crime against humanity of apartheid. And that is something Palestine has asked the court to address. Probably other states that will speak in the rest of the week will do as well. Um, So that will be one of the issues that a lot of people, including my organization, will be following very carefully. So that comes into it because it would have an effect on whether or not the occupation is legal or illegal. 
depending on whether or not you decide or whether or not the court decides that, that sorry, South Africa slipped the tongue there, that Israel is, is, is committing apartheid in this situation. If they're, if they're committing apartheid, would that make the occupation less legal, if you, if you see what I'm sort of asking here? If Israel's committing the crime against humanity of apartheid, it's a crime against humanity, and therefore anything connected um, with that crime would be unlawful. Um, is that this court hearing, I mean, the court will probably rule on whether the occupation is um, unlawful or not, but it could rule on a lot of other related issues as well, related to the occupation. Um, another important issue um, in human rights is whatever it says about the occupation, that it makes very clear that the laws, is called international humanitarian law, the law of occupation, um, that protects Palestinians in the occupation, that that continues to apply. For example, that settlements are stated to be clearly unlawful and actually they're a war crime. Um, and that you don't say, well, the um, occupation is unlawful and therefore no laws apply. But also that basic human rights apply to Palestinians, whoever is actually controlling them, whoever is um, the de facto government, um, something a lot of us have been saying for a while. And also that some of these international crimes apply. Um, I mentioned apartheid, but also the war crime of settlements, which is actually the transfer of civilians by the occupier into an occupied territory. So the transfer of Israeli civilians as settlers. Now, that's a war crime. And this court could make that really clear and say, this is what this means. That's very helpful. I think I was sort of under the impression that this was a, a yes-no question. Is the occupation legal or or illegal? And that's sort of all they had to decide. But as you're saying, they, they could make judgments on lots of aspects of the occupation. And um, that's very helpful. Thank you. Why are there so many countries involved? And there are 52 countries, um, I think, in, involved in this case, which, as I understand, is, is the most countries that have ever been involved in a case at the ICJ before. Um, what's going on there? Yeah, as you said, it's a record in the nearly 80-year history of the International Court of Justice. So 52 states will speak this week, starting with Palestine today. South Africa will be next tomorrow. Um, three international organizations, the African Union, the League of Arab States, um, the OIC, the um, Islamic Grouping of States. Um, and it, it is a record because a very large number of states are more interested in international law and how it can be upheld by organizations like the ICJ. And what's been particularly important is we've been seeing some leadership by um, some states from the global south. So we're expecting strong statements this week from South Africa and Namibia, almost certainly speaking about the crime of apartheid, which they have strong authority to speak on. Um, Indonesia will very certain, almost certainly make a strong intervention. Um, other states may as well. United States and the United Kingdom, um, maybe France, they're all due to intervene. Um, we'll see what they speak on. Um, it's very unlikely to be um, strong on human rights in, in these cases. But this record number shows the great interest and the great interest in that um, these continuing violations of very basic, in some cases, international law, um, in this case by Israel, in the occupation matters. But it also shows the way international law is being changed. The last um, ruling 
advisory opinion by this International Court of Justice was about the islands in Chagos in the Indian Ocean, which is US and the UK um, forcibly deported the entire population. That we say is an ongoing colonial crime. In that case of the ICJ itself, it showed that states in the global south are taking on, saying this law, which has often been applied just to countries in the global south, should be applied to countries in the global north as well on the same standards. We've said 52 states are involved in this case. Israel aren't one of them. Um, so Israel aren't giving evidence um, in, in this particular hearing. They did um, sort of intervene and give evidence, or they defended themselves, I suppose, in the genocide case in that, that South Africa brought to the ICJ. Why the difference between these two cases? We have to ask the Israeli government that. It's, um, well, it's difficult to understand the legal tactics. Israel's made a written submission. Those written submissions by states, and that's, I think, a few more, 50-something have um, made them, um, they'll become public this week. And they were made some months ago. So we can see what Israel's saying there. Why they chose not to participate, um, it may be because I think um, Netanyahu today has, again, denounced the International Court of Justice and its legitimacy. But it's still difficult to participate in the court hearings and then claim they're not legitimate when you you don't like the result. Um, and it also shows that, I assume if Israel had participated, like Palestine, it would have been given three hours to put forward um, their case. Um, as it was, without participating, it's Palestine that has three hours to set the tone of the week. In terms of the 52 countries gi- giving evidence, and they'll be giving you know evidence sort of one by one throughout the week, should we understand this as, as countries having picked teams? So it will the case that basically the United States is standing up and arguing for Israel, um, and then Indonesia are standing up and arguing for Palestine. Is, is that what we're looking at here? The 52 states, some may be taking clear sides, although what they're arguing for is actually an advisory opinion on the law and the legal consequences. And although it's not technically binding, um, it can have a lot of strong effect, even say moral impact, but also that when the inter- International Court of Justice, the World Court, says something is the law, other courts have to follow. And again, one of the clear demands by the General Assembly, and which Palestine repeated today, is that the court makes clear what the legal consequences are for all states and the UN of dealing with Israel's continuing violations of international law in the occupation. And that could include saying what should happen about arms sales, what should happen about funding, say funding that goes directly or indirectly to the settlements. And that could have very clear consequences. And we can, I think, we'll see states speaking out on different issues. And some may speak out on racial discrimination and apartheid. Some may speak out on the legal consequences um, for all states. They're not necessarily getting involved to say uh, illegal, yes or no, but because whatever the ICJ rules, it will leave some sort of precedence that might impinge on sort of other states and and their sort of rights or, or, or obligations. Finally, I suppose a cynic or a skeptic might say, um, we've been here before. There was an ICJ ruling in 2004, which found that the separation wall, um, which Israel has put up, well, I say between Israel and the occupied territories, but one of the reasons it was ruled as illegal by the ICJ is because most of it's situated within 
Palestinian territory. So they judged that to be illegal in part because it was, um, you know, they said it amounts to de facto annexation. Um, but as people will probably know, um, that wall still very much stands. Um, so that wall has been illegal in the eyes of the ICJ for 20 years, but there doesn't seem to have been um, many consequences for that um, advisory opinion as it was back then. Why would this be any different this time around? It depends what the court says, how it says it, and then what people can make of it. Say, if the court says something clear, like um, states should not supply arms to Israel that could be used in unlawful activities, then um, it will be for domestic states, domestic courts, to try to stop those arms sales, as the Dutch court just ruled about um, Dutch arms sales to Israel. Um, the last advisory opinion by this court um, was on Chagos, as I mentioned. Um, though it was an advisory opinion in the last year or so, the UK government has felt under an obligation um, to enter into negotiations about Mauritius on the future of Chagos because of the result of that opinion and the isolation the UK government then had in the UN and the UN General Assembly. So it's really not just what states do this week, but what they do in the coming months and with the outcome of the court, which will probably be in a few months. That's Clive Baldwin speaking to me earlier today. I mean, I think as with you know, so many of these issues, what will matter is the combination of a judgment from the court with some countries who are willing to show some actual political will to do something about this, right? So, so long as you've got the United States imposing its veto, so long as you've got countries such as the United Kingdom happy to go along with whatever the United States want to do, I'm ignoring these rulings. Obviously, um, you know, that ruling or that advice about the wall in 2004, if the Americans and the Brits had got behind that and said, look, Israel, you have to comply with this advice um, from, from the International Court of Justice, or we'll stop providing you aid, or we'll apply some sanctions, then maybe that illegal wall wouldn't be standing anymore. And it really is worth um, uh, sort of going on, you know, Google it or whatever. And if you look at the, the route that the wall takes, the separation wall takes, it's got all of these little squiggles in it, which are just carving out huge areas of the West Bank, which is why it's de facto annexation, because it's essentially, it's, it's like if, um, you know, if, 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 if England and, and Scotland became independent countries, or we ended up, you know, there were some tensions and we built a border wall between the two countries, but England had a bit more power. So we made this really bizarre wall, which also carved out Edinburgh. You know, it's, it's really, really, you know, phenomenally, phenomenally sort of shameless. Clearly a country that thinks it can act with impunity, as we discuss so much on this show. We are staying with this topic. With nearly 1.5 million displaced Palestinians crammed into Rafah on Palestine's southern border, the world awaits Israel's next move. And Benny Gantz, one of three members of Israel's war cabinet, has given a clue. The world must know, and Hamas leaders must know, if by Ramadan, hostages are not home, the fighting will continue everywhere to include Rafah area. Ramadan is expected to start on the 10th or 11th of March this year, less than three weeks away. And that is a terrifying threat from Benny Gantz. Ordinary Palestinians have, of course, no influence on whether the remaining Israeli hostages are released. So it's hard to see what Gantz said as anything other than a threat of collective punishment. Of course, collective punishment of Palestinians by Israel would be nothing new. More information 
is emerging about the abuses Palestinians in Gaza have had to endure at the hands of Israeli forces. A panel of UN experts has today expressed alarm over allegations of shocking human rights violations against Palestinian women and girls. The members of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls said this. We are shocked by reports of the deliberate targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinian women and children in places where they sought refuge or while fleeing. Some of them were reportedly holding white pieces of cloth when they were killed by the Israeli army or affiliated forces. We are particularly distressed by reports that Palestinian women and girls in detention have also been subjected to multiple forms of sexual assault, such as being stripped naked and searched by male Israeli army officers. At least two female Palestinian detainees were reportedly raped, while others were reportedly threatened with rape and sexual violence. The group's members also expressed concern over allegations that on at least one occasion, Palestinian women detained in Gaza were kept in a cage in the rain and cold without food. The UN report isn't the only one detailing horrific violence against civilians in Gaza. This opinion article appeared in the Los Angeles Times this weekend. It has this headline, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war, it was annihilation. Irfan Galaria arrived in Gaza at the end of January, working at the Gaza European Hospital near Khan Yunis, a city then under continual Israeli assault. This is how he describes conditions in the hospital. I began work immediately, performing 10 to 12 surgeries a day, working 14 to 16 hours at a time. The operating room would often shake from the incessant bombings, sometimes as frequent as every 30 seconds. We operated in unsterile settings that would have been unthinkable in the United States. We had limited access to critical medical equipment. We performed amputation of arms and legs daily using a giggly saw, which is a Civil War era tool, essentially a segment of barbed wire. Many amputations could have been avoided if we'd had access to standard medical equipment. It was a struggle trying to care for all the injured within the constructs of a healthcare system that has utterly collapsed. It's an absolutely brutal piece of writing, and this is one of the more disturbing accounts he gives. I stopped keeping track of how many new orphans I had operated on. After surgery, they would be filed somewhere in the hospital. I'm unsure of who will take care of them or how they will survive. On one occasion, a handful of children, all about ages five to eight, were carried to the emergency room by their parents. All had single sniper shots to the head. These families were returning to their homes in Khan Yunis, about 2.5 miles away from the hospital, after Israeli tanks had withdrawn. But the snipers apparently stayed behind. None of these children survived. Now, snipers don't accidentally fire bullets into children's heads. So if true, this would amount to the most serious of war crimes. There have, of course, been many, many allegations of widespread atrocities committed by Israeli troops in Gaza, much of it coming from Palestinians and international organizations based in Gaza. But Israel is also providing plenty of evidence themselves, apparently completely unembarrassed by their abuses of the human rights of Palestinians. Now, most of that footage has been posted by IDF soldiers and settlers on social media platforms, so you know, somewhat uh, a disorganized and fashion that this is being shared. Um, but now Israeli TV station Channel 14 has aired a news segment showing the IDF's treatment of captive Palestinian men. In the footage, an IDF commander describes a group of Palestinian men bound, blindfolded, and kneeling on the ground as Hamas terrorists. 
Some of them claims the commander participated in the October 7th attacks, and he tells other IDF men that the men killed families and children and were picked up at checkpoints in Gaza. He also says that anyone who tries to fight arrest is killed. One younger soldier says he finds it hard to stand near the bound men. The commander says they all do, but there are no innocent people. Later in that clip, the commander interrogates one of the captured men who says that on the 7th of October, he was at home working in a furniture store. The commander then turns to the other soldiers and says, they all start like that, but eventually they tell the truth. Perhaps there's a connection between that phenomenon and torture. This report from Euromed Human Rights Monitor was published last week. According to Gazans detained by the IDF, the military tortured them naked and allowed Israeli civilians to watch. The report is based on multiple reports from former detainees held in two different detention camps on the border of the Gaza Strip. According to Euromed, the reports mark a worsening of conditions for Gazans detained by the IDF, who were also subjected to, quote, cruel torture, enforced disappearances, arbitrary arrest, and denials of a fair trial, among other atrocities. Helena, that footage from um, Israeli news sort of showing, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're calling them a mass terrorist. They could be, I, I have no faith in due process um, by the Israeli military when it comes to Palestinians. We know they essentially kidnap lots of people without any kind of charge. Um, that's gone really viral on social media, I think, because people are sort of shocked that the Israelis seem proud of this. I'm not sure I've seen anything like it before. I mean, what was your reaction? I mean, the image that this conjures in my mind are all of the same things that we saw from Guantanamo Bay or Abu Ghraib, these kind of things, these images that we saw all of those years ago. What this is, to me, is emblematic of the kind of dehumanisation of the other that you get when you administer an apartheid regime. This is the kind of othering that you have. There's another part to this as well, which is the continual desire to paint all adult fighting capability Palestinian men as being treated like they are members of a master of the Qassam Brigades, when of course the, the Qassam Brigades fighting capacity is 40,000 men and there are half a million men in the Gaza Strip of fighting age. So what this has done is a way to inflate the numbers of the legitimate military targets and civilian deaths, because of course the international discussion on this issue has been just quite the scale of civilian casualties that they have been. So you have to massage those figures somewhat by trying by trying to ensure that you can paint the picture of more people dying as being legitimate military targets than necessarily have been by using this broad category of what constitutes a legitimate military target. One thing I would also talk about, if we're going to talk about the level to which the Israel are unembarrassed of their own output on these things, and Channel 14 in specific. There was another story from Channel 14 just yesterday discussing what's called the Netzarim Corridor. Now, this is a two-kilometer-wide exclusion zone between north and south Gaza. So this is where an old Israeli settlement used to be, and they've paved a road from the Armistice Line all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, using it as a checkpoint in which people cannot cross from the south back up to the north. This two-kilometer-long exclusion zone involved the demolishing of two separate hospitals within this area as well. And the only people who are allowed to cross are, quote-unquote, legitimate humanitarian convoys. And I'm sure there'll be very stringent restrictions on what they might be. What first this is, is a direct violation of the 
statements made by Anthony Blinken over there being no reduction in territory within Gaza. Of course, there is the two kilometre long exclusion zone. And there is, of course, the buffer zone around the armistice line of one kilometre as well, which is in violation of what Blinken said as well. And on top of that, my mind is cast back to when Elon Levy in conversation with Krishnan Guru Murthy specifically said, well, of course, if they're going to if we're going to attack Rafa, we want to get civilian scout of the way. So they have to go back up north to places already cleared. I'm like, but if you're going to have the North Gaza completely removed from where anybody within Rafa can get to, then there is literally nowhere for them to go, which then we have to go back to what Benny Gantz was saying earlier on in that clip about there being no choice in terms of the ultimatum when they eventually could attack Rafa post-Ramadan, should Hamas not release the hostages, which of course they have offered a hostage deal on for four months so far, which Israel have rejected at this point. And the last point I'd make is it just shows the level to which the Israel allowed to get away with things that other people might not be able to. Remember how there is a there's a strategic corridor that Putin has established between Rostov and Crimea, which was the justification, I guess, in military terms for the occupation of Zaporizhia and Herzon Oblast in Ukraine, because that's where the, they can use as a as ability to be able to conduct strategic military attacks between anywhere from Crimea up to the Rostov Oblast, and that received international condemnation by the international community from the West, as it rightly should. Yet when we get the same amount of what is occupation in terms of Gaza and this exclusion zone, which involving demolishing loads of buildings, including hospitals, absolute silence and crickets. I wonder why. We are going to come back to Palestine later in the show. First, though, is this man the most successful lobbyist in Britain? True democracy is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. We demand a people's house! We demand a people's house! We are in crisis! We are in crisis! The whole future is in jeopardy! That was Yaz Ashmawi interrupting Keir Starmer's speech at last year's Labour conference. Um, with some glittery props, he was demanding citizen-led democracy. And less than five months later, Labour have said this... Sue Gray, who is Starmer's chief of staff, has said that Labour will create citizens' juries to bypass Whitehall. The Times write this. Gray, who is in charge of the party's preparations for government, said in her first interview in the role that plans were being worked on to involve the public directly in deciding contentious issues such as constitutional reform, devolution, and where new houses should be built. She cited the transformational success of citizens' juries in Ireland that had built consensus for constitutional changes, including ending the ban on abortion and allowing gay marriage. But she acknowledged that the plans were likely to face resistance from her former civil service colleagues, saying, Whitehall will not like this because they have no control. In Ireland, citizens' assemblies are typically made up of 99 randomly selected members of the public and one appointed moderator. The members then collectively examine studies and hear from ordinary people affected by an issue, and their conclusions culminate in recommendations to Parliament or, um, in the case of the abortion ban or gay marriage, a referendum. So, are citizens' assemblies a good idea? Or is this another gimmick from a Labour Party that can't make up their own minds on key policy matters? I spoke earlier to Sarah Castell. She's CEO of the Involve Foundation, which runs and campaigns for citizens' assemblies. 
I think it's absolutely the right thing for every party to be considering in the run-up to the election. And anyone who seeks to be in government needs to think about new ways to get citizens more involved in, in tackling the big issues of our times. You know, in the 20th, 21st century, we have a lot of very complicated issues from climate change through to how we manage our economy, how we exist globally in the world, how we exist with one another. And all of those things are things that the people of the country need to have more of a say on and bring their judgment to bear, not just opinions and polling and focus groups, but they're, they're real informed judgment. And citizens' assemblies are a brilliant way to do that. So I very much welcome uh, any announcement and particularly the Labour Party's uh, consideration of this. I suppose a cynic might say this is just another way by which politicians can kind of outsource decision-making processes. So you sort of make the Office for Budget Responsibility very powerful when it comes to sort of budget day. And now you're saying, oh, that the housing crisis is too difficult to solve. We don't want to upset NIMBYs. Um, so we'll give it to the Citizens' Assembly and they can work it out. Is it an abdication of responsibility by politicians? I think it's the opposite, to be honest, when it's done properly. I mean, as with any kind of uh, process of governance, you can do it well and in good faith, or you can do it badly and in bad faith, right? And if this is done well and in good faith, I think it can it can really help. There is a lot of wastage in policies that don't work and that don't work on the ground. You mentioned NIMBYs, but there are lots of people with really strongly held views about uh, everything from you know housing to the economy to everything. Uh, and so, people whose views don't align with the policies that they have to live under tend to not be happy with those policies. And often then the policies tend to fail and we waste money. We waste the energy of uh, both our elected representatives and the people have to deliver services and, and, and processes on the ground. And so it's much better to get everyone on board, first of all, particularly all the people whose lives are affected by the decisions that are made. And, and you get better decisions if you get people more involved up front. How does it work as Citizens' Assembly? Is it like jury service? So sort of, you know, the, the government have the names of everyone, presumably on some kind of record, and then they just pick out of a hat a hundred of them, and then you get invited to take part in a Citizens' Assembly. Am I sort of, is that what we're looking at here? I don't know if anybody's got the names of everybody in the country on a list and can pick them out of a hat. Uh, that's possibly slightly, uh, slightly a bridge too far. Um, the, quite often, uh, the citizens' assemblies will be selected via things like um, postal records and uh, the opportunities of sending out letters. Sometimes you can send out 30,000 letters to get 100 people. Um, those people can then apply to be part of the assembly. Um, and then there is, a, there is a, a process called sortition, which creates a group of people that are balanced based on the important uh, features of, of the country or the issue that we're talking about. So it'd probably be balanced by gender, by age. It could be people's political leanings so that it reflects the balance of the population. It could be people's thoughts or opinions on the subject under discussion. Uh, obviously, it could be geographically where people live. Those kind of things are, are, are built up in, in a good sort of social science way, just in the same way that uh, that people might build a sample for, for, for all sorts of research. Um, but this is different because people then are allowed to say, yes, I would like to take part. And then even those who are perhaps a bit uncertain about taking part can be supported and onboarded um, so that their voices can be heard. And I think that's really important. People sometimes criticise citizens' assemblies and maybe misunderstand them and think, oh, is, is it just like anyone who wants to or is it just a random group of people? Well, in, if that was the case, you would get the same problems in society as a whole, that those with the loudest voices or those who are best equipped to take part in debates and discussions would end up having their voices heard the most. 
But the Citizens' Assembly, um, it's a facilitated, supported process. So everybody, whatever their background, whatever their experience of those kind of things, um, can get involved and, and, and take part. Uh, so people are paid to take part. They're, they're supported with things like you know, travel and transport, access requirements of all kinds. So you really do, do reflect you know, the people that are, that are in the world rather than just a small subset of them. Say you have a situation where there's a citizens' assembly, say, you know, I mean, housing was one of the ones that was suggested, wasn't it? So they say we need to build um, 300,000 council homes and do really dramatic planning reform. Um, Then that doesn't become law automatically, does it? That that goes to parliament. And then what if you get MPs in parliament who say, well, actually, we're we're not sure about this. And then they sort of have the same wrangling process they normally do to, to add various amendments and and maybe take the essence of the suggestion from the Citizens' Assembly out of of the bill as it gets through um, the legislature. This is why it's so interesting that we're all now discussing it this week, because what you're talking about is the nuts and bolts of how would it work alongside our existing governance. So we don't have, as yet, a national-level Citizens' Assembly in the UK. We don't have any agreed rules for how it would work in with, with legislation. Would it be done at a particular point in that cycle where legislation was then going to happen? Maybe, or it could be done at different points of the of the policy cycle or in different places. It's already happening in local government, in different places across the country, in Scotland. In Ireland, it's uh, particularly... Uh, structured in a certain way so that it feeds into uh, the planning of referenda, which then go forward to the, to the parliament in that way. So there are a lot of different ways you can structure it. And what's exciting is us planning for how we do it rather than just talking about it in the abstract. Um, so to your question about could MPs overturn it? Well, if it was done properly and it was put in with the right kind of question uh, and, and a question that was actually genuinely helpful to MPs, there would be nothing, as it were, to overturn. It would be a, a set of recommendations to a process that was legitimately and genuinely on the table for discussion. Uh, and the public's views would be one of the inputs that MPs would take into account. Um, so I think it would be difficult then for, had it been done that way, it would be difficult then for MPs to just ignore it. And, and that would probably lead to greater lack of trust than not doing it in the first place. So this comes back to what I'm saying about it's got to be done properly. It's got to be done in good faith. Um, and if it is, then the rewards are potentially immense. We'll go on to our next story. The SNP will be tabling a second vote this Wednesday on whether Britain should call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, you'll remember that last time they did this, Labour whipped their MPs to abstain. So what about this time around? Well, at Scottish Labour conference, Keir Starmer did seem to have changed his tune. An end to the fighting, not just now, not just for a pause, but permanently. A ceasefire that lasts, conference, that is what must happen now. The fighting must stop now. That was Keir Starmer getting a very big round of applause for deciding 30,000 dead Palestinians was probably enough. But would it mean Labour would vote for the SNP motion? This was Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy on the BBC. I haven't seen the motion. It's not yet put down. Uh, We will scrutinise that motion, uh, as is our way in Parliament. That will come in on uh, Monday, I suspect, Tuesday, and we will take it from there. But look, let us be clear. Yes, we will have a vote in Parliament this week, but it's not that vote that will bring about a ceasefire. It's the diplomatic action. It's Hamas. It's Benjamin Netanyahu. uh, It's partners for peace saying the fighting must now stop. 
David Lammy, the motion's actually been published already, and we've got it here. The SNP motion says this house calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. It notes with shock and distress that the death toll has now risen beyond 28,000. That is the motion. It is crystal clear. Will Labour vote for it? Well, look, I've seen that swirling around uh, social media, but that's not a motion. That's, that's just a form of words swirling around social media. And well, I don't think that was the entirety that you read out. That's not a motion. That's just a form of words swirling around social media. Well, do you agree with it? Right? It's actually pretty basic. We demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza right now. That's the question at hand. Um, I think it's important to note here when, you know, because Starmer said in that speech, we want a ceasefire. We want a lasting ceasefire now. And uh, he's a very loyally person. And the more words you add before ceasefire, actually, the weaker the demand becomes. Because if you say, I want a ceasefire now, then, okay, ceasefire now. If you say, I want a lasting ceasefire now, then the Israelis can say, I mean, obviously, you know, the Israelis don't have to respond to this motion anyway, but how sort of uh, this kind of thing works. Um, the Israelis can say, in theory, oh, yes, we would like a lasting ceasefire now, but Hamas aren't offering us a lasting ceasefire because they'll say the only way to get a lasting ceasefire is to completely destroy Hamas. So a ceasefire now is a powerful demand. A lasting ceasefire now is not because it gives you all of this wiggle room. And what does Keir Starmer love? Wiggle room, right? Um, Labour have still not confirmed whether they will vote for the SNP motion. Um, Wes Streeting, though, did offer a new development this morning in terms of Labour's assessment of the war. Every country in the world has a right to defend itself, but I think what we've seen uh, are actions that go beyond reasonable self-defence and also call into question whether in, uh, Israel has broken international law and the ICJ are now investigating, and we take all of that seriously. What Keir has sought to do throughout the conflict is to work in lockstep with our allies and uh, friends in the region, countries like Jordan, uh, Egypt, Qatar have huge agency in this conflict and have been doing an awful lot of diplomatic heavy lifting behind the scenes, as has the United States. And we've sought to conduct ourselves in the way that we would if we were in government. Uh, and lots of people are engaging with Labour on the basis that we could be the government later this year, including um, the, the world leaders that Keir met over the weekend in Munich at the Security Conference. Has Israel gone too far? Well, I think objectively, yes. Uh, Israel has gone too far. And we see that with the disproportionate loss of innocent civilian life. The subtext there was that Labour now feel they can say Israel has gone too far because Joe Biden has now called Israel's war over the top, right? That's why there's all this talk of moving in lockstep with our allies. We won't do anything the Americans won't do, right? And Streeting says this is how Labour would govern. So no bold moves and simply saying whatever the Americans do, we will agree with. It's a position without any principle. It's also um, taken Britain down some really dark roads before when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and, I mean, as will be obvious to you, Labour do keep changing their position, probably, because they're not driven by any principle. Now, an example, Wes Streeting said there in that interview that Labour take the ICJ ruling seriously. Well, this is what he said last month when asked about the ICJ. On Gaza, you rejected the idea of a ceasefire. The South Africans have gone to, to the International Court of Justice in pursuit of a ruling which would have that effect. Uh, David Cameron's told me this morning he thinks that's just wrong. Do you agree? I think it's the distraction from what needs to happen, which is the diplomatic heavy lifting to bring about an end to this conflict. So in January, the ICJ case was a distraction. Now Labour are 
taking it seriously? What changed? Right? Is there, is there some material facts on the ground changed? Or is Labour now decided that its focus groups are suggesting, oh, maybe, maybe now is the time um, to take these charges seriously? I say focus groups. I think actually this has much more to do with sort of appealing to elites, right? A- appealing to a foreign policy establishment, because as we know, um, ordinary voters want to ceasefire. Helena, how do you think Labour will vote um, this time around? Or how do you think the Labour Party will whip its MPs to vote on, on Wednesday when the SNP put its ceasefire motion forward? I think it's unlikely for them to vote for the ceasefire motion. They may whip to abstain specifically. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The first of all is that it's, an, it's a motion that's been tabled by somebody who they do not want to govern with, the, the SNP. Considering that it's the SNP who proposed the motion last time that they whipped to vote against, I think that whilst we want to, I think, agree with the SNP on the moral justification for the vote, there is also a kind of political bent to what's happening there, where they are deliberately trying to push Labour into having to retract previous positions that they've held, which obviously we've seen in practical terms, but we haven't seen in legislative terms. And that's why one of the political reasons, I think, is the SNP have tabled this very specific motion. And so what would kind of be a motion that they don't want to have to seem to be, or to sorry, to be seen, to be allowed to get played by the SNP this issue. And I think that the, that level of kind of political machination is something that it frustrates me, but I understand the reasons for it. The second of the reasons is then we would call into question, if you're going to vote for this SNP motion, why didn't you vote for the last one? Why is it now, or 28,000, well, that's too many, but it was 20,000, it was 25,000. That's a fine level of civilian casualty. I don't know why this is suddenly the barrier for unacceptable loss of civilian life. And what this really kind of calls into question is whether any of the positions that Labour ever take are from a position of moral fortitude. I mean, you covered that in the previously contradictory positions being said by Mr. Streeting there. And I think obviously they don't. They are all tactical positions in terms of where they think they are going to get votes from at the next election. We've seen much coverage of not just the Muslim vote, but the people who support a ceasefire in Gaza pulling their votes away from the Labour Party in response to their position on this very specific issue, which, as you've also detailed, it basically is essentially taken from the United States, US State Department. Of course, they haven't directly called for a ceasefire in the US yet, but we have seen other US-aligned countries who usually take their geopolitical orders really and truly from the US State Department have called for a ceasefire officially. There was a joint statement being made by New Zealand, Australia and Canada calling for a ceasefire. And given that Keir Starmer was literally talking with Anthony Blinken in Munich on the 17th, I believe there could have been some conversation between the two of them upon the kind of statements that are within their remit to be able to make in terms of being in lockstep with our allies. But again, all this calls into question, why now? How has it taken this long? Why is 28,000 the magic number of unacceptable civilian, civilian casualties? And then again, as I mentioned before, why did they vote no? the very first time this was tabled. So I don't think they'll whip to vote yes. I think even potentially saying why now is being too kind to them because I still don't think they are strongly calling for an immediate ceasefire. Because as I say, if you say it has to be a lasting ceasefire, a lasting ceasefire now, you give wiggle room to the Israelis and the Israelis are going to use that that wiggle room. Um, What happens when you borrow your positions from someone else? If you borrow your positions from the US State Department, you're not going to be very confident explaining your stance, yourself, right? Because you didn't come up with it. You just borrowed it from someone else. Um, And that was proven in this latest clip of Rachel Reeves being confronted by two women in Leeds. Obviously, we've been following you for a really long time. Nice to meet you. And um, 
We just really wanted to understand. We are about to start drawing. Yeah, no, that's really, really good because we want to make sure that Riaz and you do really well. Yeah. And it's really important to us that Labour wins this. It's been a long time waiting. 14 years. The only only thing is, is that we're really concerned, Rachel. What's your current position in respect of... What's happening in Gaza at the moment? Well, we have this conversation separately. Rather well, we've tried to have this com- we've, ha- we've tried to have this conversation, would, and you've it, not been available. Can, can we start the campaign into, session? It, so it, it doesn't, we'll it doesn't work. We've we'll, 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 tried, we'll, and we'll, it's we'll, not we'll, worked. Are you in my constituency? We've tried through the mosque. Are you? I've seen Arshad recently. Are you in my constituency? I'm not, but I'm a part. I'm a part. You were. I'm a Muslim, and I live in the UK, and I pay my taxes. You're with us. A wide range of constituents every week, and if you are a constituent, yeah, in fact, touch, I was in touch with. Is there, why, is there a reason why? Is there a reason why you can't answer the question? Because I have a huge number of people contact me, and my surgeries are for constituents. So does that mean that every time a different person contacts you, you have a different answer? No, because we just simply want one answer. No, no, no. They're only simple questions. They are simple questions, right? I mean, it's it's just really pathetic i think like obviously i want and it, my, my position is different from the labor party's position right i i think there should have been immediate ceasefire back in october right this idea that this is a uh, a war by a state defending itself and trying to take out a terrorist organization their words from the start have been clear this is a war to try and take back a territory right to try and destroy any palestinian hopes for statehood right they've been making those those statements from the top of government this whole time. But, you know, if I was Rachel Reeves, if I had chosen the wrong position, I would at least be able to argue for it, right? You should have just said, yeah, of course, we all want we all want to see a ceasefire. We all want to see um, no one die. We're all horrified to see this, but what we want is a long-lasting peace, yada, yada, yada. You know the crap that you hear Keir Starmer say all the time. But she can't even do that. She's just like, oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm campaigning. I'm campaigning. Oh, 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 uh, why, why are you talking to me? You know, the, the robot is somewhat malfunctioning. Like, you, you just speak like an ordinary human being for, for two minutes, right? You have some disagreements and you say, look, I recognize we have a difference of opinion, but I've got to go campaigning now. You don't act as if the mere, you know, the, the mere question, the mere idea that a member of a pub, the, a member of the public could, could go up to a politician and politely ask them a question. That's suspicious. Oh, 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 no, uh, um, you, b- b- book in with me in my constituency office. That's the only place I will have a conversation with another human being who isn't an advisor you know, or another politician or someone at the Bank of England or someone who runs a FTSE 100 company, right? Talking to ordinary people shouldn't be that scary, Rachel, right? Especially if you want to be the chancellor. Amateurs. Let's go on. Before we go, we should play part of an interview coming out on our channel tomorrow with U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. My colleague Ash Sarkar sat down with him today and discussed the situation in Gaza. In your view, is what Israel is doing in Gaza a genocide? In my view, it is absolutely disgraceful, horrible, and I'm doing as a United States senator everything I can to end it. And where I'm sitting is, and I don't know how many people know this, every year the United States provides about $3.5 billion in military aid to Israel. On top of that, there is a bill. I was supposed to be here earlier. I was, couldn't come. 
because a bill came up for not just all for Israel, $95 billion, including $14 billion for Israel. And I have led the opposition to that. I do not want to see the United States complicit in what Netanyahu and his right-wing lunatic friends are doing right now to the Palestinian people. So my job right now is to support what the United Nations is trying to do, have a humanitarian ceasefire, see if we can get the humanitarian aid immediately in there, uh, and work out as complex and difficult as it is some type of long-term solution to you know, what's going on there. But do you buy the South African case at the International Court of Justice that what Israel is doing in Gaza constitutes genocide or genocidal acts? I think, look, we can argue about definitions. It is horrible. Right now, 29,000 people have been killed and some 70,000 have been injured. Uh, some 65% of the housing units have been destroyed or damaged. And I am worried right now, and I, I almost wonder why I'm in the UK and not back in the US dealing with this stuff, is that we have hundreds of thousands of children are facing starvation. That's what I have to work on right now. But if one agrees that it is a genocide, it means that other states have a legal right and duty to prevent genocidal acts being carried out. But see, we can talk about that. But what does that mean in real terms? Right now, what I am trying to do is what I think is probably maybe, and I can do it because I'm a senator, you can't. Right now, maybe, maybe, if we tell Mr. Netanyahu that he's not getting a check for $10 billion more to continue his aggressive action, he and his right-wing friends may decide it is not a good idea to continue to do that. So that's, that's where I am coming from. In addition to... Uh, stopping the billions of dollars in military aid that Israel gets from the United States every year. Would you back calls for a cultural, sporting, and economic boycott of Israel? I am nervous about economic boycotts of any country, to be honest with you. But right now, what uh, you know, people want to do, they can do what they want to do. But right now, again, my job as a United States senator, and I'm kind of leading that effort in the Senate, is to tell Netanyahu that he is not going to get any more U.S. aid. Did you feel nervous about the boycott movement against apartheid South Africa? Was that a concern you had at the time? Uh, what I thought that as a, an apartheid state at that point, it was important to put pressure. But people can do as they want. And what, you know, that's all. Do you think that it's right that British citizens and American citizens can go and fight in the IDF when, as you say, there are such profound humanitarian concerns in Gaza? Well, I think if British and American people want to do that, I suppose they have the right to do it. It's not something that I've really thought a whole lot about. Do you think they should have the right? Look, I think what the Israeli government doing now is horrible. And I'm not quite sure why people would want to be, you know, part of that effort. Nobody's perfect, huh? Uh, you know, I, I think it's important for us to say, oh, Bernie Sanders, complete idiot. You know, I can't believe anyone ever had any faith in him and voted for him in the primaries. But I mean, that wasn't a particularly impressive interview, was it? I suppose in his, it was very well done by Ash, I mean, impressive on her part. I suppose in his defense, maybe he's saying, my priority is to get past, or get this bill passed in the Senate to sort of limit military aid to Israel. I mean, that seems a bit of a lost cause anyway, but I mean, it's good, you know, it's good he's trying to do that. And to build the biggest coalition possible, he needs to sort of sidestep the questions about genocide. But I mean, 
He should at least be able to say, I think, well, look, the ICJ have said there is a plausible chance of genocide. And yes, that does give um, an obligation on all states to try and prevent that. And he could have linked that if he wanted to his bill, you know, his bill about limiting funding to Israel. By the way, a very important bill. I mean, very effective from Ash as well. Economic boycotts of any country make me feel nervous. Well, were you nervous about South Africa? Well, I did support the one about South Africa. Well, then what about the one about Israel? Consistency is important. Helena, um, lots of people on social media not impressed um, with Bernie Sanders' answers there. What did you What did you make of it? I think we're really coming up against the limits to what these allyships of convenience with bourgeois liberal parties, the leftists have engaged in, how the efficacy of these. In the, I think that Bernie Sanders has done really good work in pushing Biden's platform leftwards on a lot of economic issues, on macroeconomic policy specifically, and it's this allyship of convenience has been use, useful there. But foreign policy is this sacred cow that can never be touched in terms of moving liberal bourgeois parties, especially in the West, with it uh, on with my, from a leftist framework. I don't think that's something that you can ever really do. And, you know, if Bernie Sanders at any point of that interview was going to admit or acquiesce to any of Ash's questions there over the legitimate claims of genocide against the state of Israel in their military engagement in Gaza, he would have to admit that the party that he supports, that he caucuses with in both in the Senate, and who he always has done, even while sitting as an independent, who he tried to be the leader of and has allied with him ever since, would be the people who are funding and helping to facilitate that genocide. Uh, it may be in, your, in private, certainly, and in public, you know, at least in effect. So that is where these limits lie. And whilst he's used this stage to promote himself and his beliefs and the kind of politics that he wants to see, I don't think that on these issues, there's any more room for him to be able to ally with the Democratic Party on this. And I think he has to actually have a breakaway. It's such an important turning point in international politics. He cannot just go with the, Dem the establishment Demo Democratic Party line on this one anymore. The full interview with Senator Sanders will be out tomorrow on our channel. So do look out for that. I've only seen that clip we've just shown you. I can't wait to watch the whole thing. Um, we'll leave it there tonight. Do come back tomorrow. We'll be covering the situation with Julian Assange, it's his last chance um, to appeal the disgraceful extradition to the United States. Um, thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight. Um, very enjoyable to have you on the show as ever. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be on the Navarro Show today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. You've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.